a Podcast One production. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Ronnie Kahn is the founder and CEO of Oz Harvest. Driven by a passion to make a difference, she founded the food rescue charity in 2004 and has since become a powerhouse in the fight against global food waste. Uh, So, Ronnie, I see you're dressed all in yellow. Good on you. We'll come back to that later. But before we get into the five choices, can I just ask, what's the favourite Five of My Life story you've heard so far? Well, I loved listening to Rabbi Jeff Kamins. I know him. He's a divine human being. And listening to some of the stories of his childhood that I didn't know just filled filled holes for me that made him even more wonderful. I love the one about him staying in the bedroom that he's had since he was four. It's incredible to think <laughs> that a man of his age still has a bedroom yeah. that he could go back to. It's oh, yes, gorgeous. Well, listen, I'm really looking forward to getting into your stories. And we're going to start, as is traditional, with your film. And you've chosen the 1980s Patrick Swayze classic, Dirty Dancing. Tell me about it. I carried a watermelon. So for some reason, obviously for many reasons, that is just a firm favourite. And sometimes when I'm feeling like I just need to watch something to brighten up my spirits, I guess what it represented for me was lack of equality, that summer holiday place. I used to go to summer camps, not quite like that, not with our parents. But, you know, all the literature I'd read of American Jewish growing up, um, the Catskills, that film embodied it all. The father that completely misunderstood and chose to back the wrong horse based on his prejudices, the beauty of of Jennifer learning to dance and me wishing I could dance like that, <laughs> even one move like that. <laughs> the lift at the end. The lift at the end, but just the evolution of their romantic. And, and were you in Israel when you saw this or you were in South Africa or in Australia? When, when Look, I would have been in Israel because Israel. I left South Africa in 1970. Right. Yeah. So I must have been in Israel. I must have already been married Yeah. and had fantasies about beautiful men and dancing <laughs> <laughs> and summer camps. I, I love that film for what it is. But yeah. you know it won an Oscar for the, for the song. Yeah, and and in your honour, I've rewatched the film, and I've been humming. Oh. I mean, you can't get that out of your. It's like an earworm. Totally, yeah. and it's the best earworm. Yeah, because it. Yeah, again, it just evokes everything, you know, of that era. And it's, it's got a special place in my heart because oh, it's good. the uh, the time of my life, yeah. which is where I got the name for this show from, which is Seriously? the five of my life. Absolutely. Well, that is incredible because the time of my life 
exactly how many memories can That's, come up about. There you go. Time. That is the concept. There you go. Well, so, I love that. So we're going to move uh, for your book from the 80s to the 90s, and you've chosen uh, Rohinton Mystery's second novel, which happens to be my wife's favourite book of all time, and it gets into my top five without without a shadow of a doubt. You've chosen a fine balance. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that, Ronnie. You know, I think what it evoked for me, what it brought up for me was this other world. I'd been brought up during the apartheid era in South Africa where we saw hideous acts of discrimination just based on the color of your skin. But reading that book, the caste system, the inequality, but the exquisiteness of the language, it took me to a place that I had never been and opened my opened the world of India to me, which I think was really what led me to going there at a later stage and India being such an important part of my life now. But, yeah, I, it, it, the thickness of that book, and I just gobbled through it. I couldn't put it down. The characters, it, it, it was so tragic, so tragic. So did, did you, uh, I mean, embarrassing revelation, but did you cry reading it? Because I, 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 there's a book, but I, there's been three or four books that I can remember, Birdsong being one of them, but where it's moved me to tears and a fine balance. I had to put it down three or four times. Oh, me too. And funnily enough, because... That was the first book that came up when when I was asked to choose a mm. favourite book and, and I figured, okay, it, it just has to be that because it stands out for me mm. always as one of the, I've, I've read many magnificent books, but that one really, I think, just stood out. I picked it up again and just ah. page, I didn't, I didn't have time to read it. And yeah, tears of just the pain, the pain of the characters, you know. It's, I've got a conflicted relationship with that book because it's so yes, painful. It is. Yet it's still in, in a bizarre way. It's about the, the value of family and friendship, but it's also, it's hopeful even though it's bleak. I know, that is what's so extraordinary. And interestingly enough, as I, 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 I go to India to, um, I have a spiritual teacher in India and where I've been going for the last 16 years. And 16 years ago, when we first started going there, he feeds a lot of um, the temple, feeds all the guests that come to the temple. And they'd sit on the floor and the devotees or the people who are there to serve would serve food on, on banana leaves and all shapes, sizes and colors come to the temple because they come to visit our teacher and somehow it just pulled all those characters together. And, and how long do you stay when you go? As long as I want. I sometimes go, f I, I mostly don't go for as long as I'd like to because sure. I don't have the time. But people can go and stay for months. And it's a sort of a meditation-based thing or? No, actually the, the major message of my teacher is go out and serve. Go out and do good. Yeah. Mm. And so I go back there just to be in that space. Um, there is, he has subsequently built a magnificent golden temple that is in a star-shaped path. And just walking around that temple, the meditative qualities, and along the walk there are messages um, 
about the kind of values and behaviors we should be exhibiting, as in, you know, serve people, serve your community, education is such a hugely important part. All these beautiful messages. It, it, it's, it's fascinating here you talk about that. I've got a friend who, I'm sure it's not the same place, but went to a spiritual retreat in India. He was sort of burnt out. He was in the yeah. banking industry in yeah. Melbourne and he was, you know, in a cliched way, you know, sitting cross-legged, you know, trying to, running away from something. Mm. And, and uh, after three or four weeks of doing this, said to his teacher, you know, what, what should I do? And the <laughs> teacher said, go back and work in banking in Melbourne. And he's going, I've come here, mate, to for get you to tell way. me to do something else. And he goes, yeah, but do, you've got to do good in the real world, yeah. which we're going to come on to with you. But, it's, it's, you know, sitting on, on a rock in India, I mean, lovely though it might be, yeah. it's not really serving humanity. Well, well, that's the beauty of our teacher who doesn't say sit here. He says go back into your world and be the best you can be and do good in your world. Well, that is the perfect link to your song. Uh, We're going to move uh, back to the 60s and you've chosen Bob Dylan's protest song, A Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall, from his second album, Freewheeling. Um, Tell me about that choice. So I was introduced to Bob Dylan probably when I was 13, knew nothing, maybe 12. My sister, who's 10 years older than me, brought me a gift for my birthday that I think she wanted and it was one of the first Bob Dylan song b- albums. And I fell in love with folk music, folk music that, as growing up in South Africa, there was one place called the Troubadour that we would go to. It was black and dark and underground and Des and Dawn Lindbergh played folk songs and, you know, it was beatnik time and it was just extraordinary. But this particular song, I think really the message, he was so prescient. He had such vision. It talks about climate change. It talks about every single thing that we're now dealing with. And so it has just always been a favorite. I, he, he is one of my most favourite. He's favorite. a genius. And, and there are people who say that that song, which was written as a poem, justifies his Nobel Prize well, literature to me on, on is, its own. Well, if he'd me, never written anything else, just that. <laughs> exactly. And this week I listened to the rolling, I watched the Martin Scorsese, ah, the Rolling right. Thunder review. And I mean, it's an absolute shambles, but the songs, the singing and the people that accompanied him on that tour which was a disaster, but which was so extraordinary. And just listening to him and watching him. I mean, he's an absolute challenge of a human being, but what what creativity, what a so mind. He wrote that when he was 21. And, it, and if you read the lyrics, well, apparently, yeah. which I yeah. find amazing, is the lyrics, which, which are incredible, are the opening lines of every song that he feared he might never get around to writing. And I, and, uh, and That's so, extraordinary. So I've got four lines here, which, yeah. which are, the last one is very relevant to you. So just amazing, how can you write things like, um, I saw a highway of diamonds, nobody on it. I've been 10,000 miles to the mouth of a graveyard, obviously yeah. Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, the executioner's face is always well hidden. And then another line, which is just amazing researching you and then reading those lyrics, is heard one person starve, I heard many people laughing. Yeah, I could cry just hmm. hearing that. Yeah, that's an amazing, very, you know, a warning to our times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
for your uh, place, you've chosen Bondi Beach, which I, I gather you live quite near the beach. I live on the beach, yeah, right, so very close to the beach. Tell me about this choice. So first of all, water, I think, is such an important part of my life. I find it so calming, meditative, exquisite. It's a wonder. It's a miracle. I don't understand it, but I, I can look at it for hours in all its different seasons and incarnations. So that's a sacred place for me. Bondi, Bondi itself, um, some years ago, we had a tragedy and a learning and a gift and a in our lives. Um, and my daughter-in-law passed away and we had... And and Bondi Beach was an important part of that. The, the, the healing process? Or the... Part of the healing process, part of the process that she couldn't be part of, mm. but we had little ceremonies down on the beach and in the corner. I, I walk on the beach as often as I can. Um, I go to the Crabby Hole, which is a beautiful place for breakfast on a Sunday morning after I've walked with my friend to Bronte and back. So it's just, it's a place for solace, but it's a place for absolute joy. Mm. Wow. I, can I read you something that I read this morning? Please do. It's in Joseph Campbell's book, The Power of Myth. And he says, what does it mean to have a sacred place? And he says, this is an absolute necessity for anybody today. You must have a room or a certain hour or so a day where you don't know what was in the newspapers that morning. You don't know who your friends are. You don't know what you owe anybody. You don't know what anybody owes to you. This is a place where you can simply experience and bring forth what you are and what you might be. Beautiful. Isn't that divine? Because yeah. that's what a beach and particularly Bondi Beach means for me. And I think for many people in this uh, digitalized era, uh, we all crave belonging, but physical belonging is being sort of chipped away at. So you can be more connected with a friend in Madrid who has my interests and a friend in New York has my interests, and I don't know my next-door neighbour. To have somewhere that you can actually access physically every day yeah. is, a, is a beautiful, meaningful thing. Well, I think it's a crucial thing. Absolutely hugely important. Now, now you, reading about you and watching and listening some of your recordings, you are driven by uh, a need for purpose. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Not at all, because I think what I've experienced over the last 15 years, and, and yes, you are right, I am so profoundly blessed to have found my calling or to be on my path, my dharma, which I, whether I stumbled upon or was supposed to be on, um, I am blessed for that. And over the last 15 years, I've probably had a thousand people come to me and say, how do I find purpose? What is purpose? What is meaning? It is now such a jargonistic thing and we're all looking for it somewhere. But really one, one answer to that is when you know that you're alive, when you feel alive in what it is you're doing, in some way you have found your purpose. So, yeah, I am possessed. I'm possessed about being this this vehicle, this vessel to deliver what it is I'm supposed to be delivering. And if there's 
any way what I do can either help anybody else find their calling, because I think in so many ways we are all so close to our calling. We just don't know because we don't know what we're looking for. Uh, have you read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for of Meaning? Course. How of course. transform one of my other guests chose yes. that as, as her book, so yeah. Wilson. But that's one of my that would get into my top five with Me uh, Fine Balance. Me too. Because uh, and the resilience and the purpose, that bigger purpose that kept somebody alive through that hideously an unimaginable time. And before yeah. you're right about it, purpose becoming jargonistic. Before all the self-help yeah. sort of flunkies of the last thirty years, Nietzsche said happiness a yay, a nay, and a goal. Yeah, yeah that's it. You don't exactly. need to read anything else. No. <laughs> yeah, you, Abs- a bit of clarity. Your job is to end food waste. Absolutely, you're doing that's quite a good job at it. <laughs> Keep going. And and the, and the great thing is, we haven't got to be puritanical about doing good. I look at you, and your work serves you as well as the nation, the nation and the globe. You go, it, it, it's a wonderful win-win. Is Your life is filled with clarity and purpose and you're feeding, what, what is it now? How many people do you feed a, a well, year? We deliver about 28 million meals a year. God love you. Good, good on you. And you started with one van. I did, <laughs> I did, van. but Can I couldn't. Can you remember the first meal you handed out? <laughs> Absolutely. I remember going to the very first, well, because I was in the catering industry, I had a hospitality background. I had an event produ- uh, production company. There were many, there was lots of food. Can I be crude yeah. for a second? Yes. My, my dad, who was, God rest his soul, who was in the Navy and, and yes. the military have had strong language. There is none so virtuous as a reformed whore. <laughs> you were in the entertainment industry, woman, throwing away volivons like well, a that is why I started Das Harvest. <laughs> I, and, and that is actually a clue to other people finding their purpose. Yes, yes. When you solve a problem that you have, perhaps it's solving a problem for somebody else. Absolutely. And that's exactly the issue. So, so there were times, and I know which food I delivered then, but actually... When I had made the decision to rescue food, even though I still ran my business for the next seven years because I hadn't started... I didn't realise you doubled up, right? Oh, I hadn't started Oz Harvest to make a living out of it and I didn't start Oz Harvest because I was a rich, bored person. I started it because I needed to do this. Sure. Um, I do recall going to, in Bondi Junction, well, not Bondi Junction, just before you get to Bondi Junction, um there was the very first organic store and it was the original macro. And I went and I used to shop there and I walked I in it, and yeah. said, you know, how would you feel if you had any surplus food that I could collect? And they said, oh, my God, that's totally brilliant. Do you want to take something now? And there were some bottles of milk and there were some a few odd-looking veggies and they put some butter. They just pulled a few things off their shelf and, and I walked out in a little box and I thought, oh, my God, it was that easy. If there was this store, there must be others because originally all I thought was I'd solve this issue in the hospitality industry. I didn't know then that $20 billion worth of good food went to waste every year just in Australia, that a third of all food produced goes to waste globally. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that what has evolved since committing and being purpose-driven to minimize food waste is that actually 
there is a bigger wrong. And the bigger wrong is that here, I mean, there isn't a bigger wrong. Globally and climate change wise, this is the third biggest reason for climate change. So fundamentally, it has to be solved. And so in solving that problem, given that good food would feed vulnerable people, looking at vulnerable people thinking, what do we do to upskill? What do we do to shift and change here in Australia that 4 million people suffer from food security or insecurity each year? South Africa, 11 million people need food, breakfast, lunch or dinner. So, you know, there is this dual um, dual battle. Bring down food waste but help upskill those in need. And then in order to bring down food waste, we actually, we, each and every one of us citizens of every country and of this planet have to shift and change our behavior. So that is very much part of the active role that we now play. One of the things that you do that I admire beyond words is you understand the difference between, it's important to strategize and think and intellectualize, between thinking and doing. The the amount of times I have met very well-intentioned, lovely people who, in reality, good intention doesn't really feed a hungry child, you know, or educate an uneducated child. It's can you have the good intentions and translate that into actions that actually have an outcome that makes the world better? And you, Ronnie, can't do. So good on you. I don't do that by myself. And that is what is so hugely important. But I, I, I think you're right. I think that is part of the major attraction and magnetism of Oz Harvest, that we actually fundamentally every day are picking up food, delivering it, feeding people. We are educating kids in school. We are educating vulnerable people. We're doing it. And I think that's what people love. (laughs) Well, keep going. Listen, I'm going to move on to the fifth choice, which is my favourite. Almost in every episode is my favourite choice because people tend to get very personal with their possession. They they, they rarely, if ever, choose something that has uh, monetary value. And I think you aren't going to be an exception because you've chosen a box with yeah. three items in it. So could you first of all describe it and then uh, yeah. explain the story behind it? So the box, when I left South Africa at 16, I took this box with me. Now this box was given to me probably at my 14th birthday by a close friend. And it was probably the first, not even knowing that it was an Indian thing that I had. So the box... Um, is kind of paper mache with beautiful decorations and mirrors. But this box is now, you know, I don't want to say how old I am, but about 50 years old. And it's dusty and some of the bits have chipped away. But And I've moved countries, I have moved houses, and somehow this box always seems to move with me. And, and is it as big as a shoebox or is it a... No, smaller. smaller. It's square. Square, right. It's square. So it's, it's a, fat sh- a fat short shoebox. Right, And it had many things in it. It had bits of jewellery, but in it is this tiny little felt heart that is hand-sewn, and it's by my oldest son, Nadav, who made that probably when he was four or five, (laughs) and it's stuffed with cotton wool, and it's very grubby, and it's got Emma, which is mother, written on it, which is very beautiful. There's a little half of a Lego man, that 
when Ido, my youngest son, who's now 40, so he would have had that when he was three or four, um, it was like we each had a little man and one of those tiny little Lego men and I'd keep it and when he'd go to school or whatever, I'd say, it's okay, I've got you close by me, you've got your little man and that little Lego piece is still there, just it's missing a, an arm. And the third one is also connected to my kids, and that was a Mother's Day gift of the ugliest little statue that you could ever have (laughs) (laughs) that looks like an old granny with glasses and hair, and it's a bit chipped, but has also come with me wherever. And, yeah, I guess my two most precious things are my sons. Yeah. And now their children and, and, and their families. Would anything ever qualify to get put in the box? Well, it's interesting because I've just moved into a new place and there is the box and I thought surely I could find a new place to put this box. And in it is a, a, a little bit of, yes, a string of beads that a very precious friend gave me. And yeah, a few little things get added to the box. Right. Yeah, so oh. and and it's funny. I didn't know that was my special possession until I was asked to think of a possession by you, and somehow that box just popped up. So, Fantastic! Yeah, I love it. Um, we're going to move on to the uh, traditional extra six question, which is, don't be don't be scared. Look at that look of terror. <laughs> <laughs> which is, who would you like to hear on? Five My Life Next. You enjoyed Jeffrey Cammons. It's been wonderful talking to you. Who would you like to hear next? So, the most extraordinary human being I would love to hear next, and I think your listeners would adore him. His name is Hilton Harmer. He's an ex-Salvos captain and probably the truest Christian in the form of whatever the best understanding of a Christian human being is. He's an extraordinary human being. And I think that if you heard some of his stories, is a guiding light. Ronnie can't thank you for sharing your five choices on The Five My Life. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I loved having to think about five things and then a sixth. <laughs> that was cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Five of My Life on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>